Good afternoon, and Council, thank you for your flexibility. Um, our next case is State versus Newborn, and I'll note that Justice Dietz is recused in this case. We'll hear from the appellant. Good afternoon, Your Honors. May it please the court, my name is Kristen Euchre. I'm a Special Deputy Attorney General with the North Carolina Department of Justice, and I represent the state in this matter. I'd like to reserve five minutes for rebuttal. This court has never held that an indictment that alleges all the essential elements was fatally defective merely because it was included on the same document as other valid indictments against the same defendant. This court's rule is that the indictment is jurisdictionally sufficient if it, one, charges all the essential elements of the offense with sufficient particularity to apprise the defendant of the specific allegations against him, two, enables him to prepare his defense, and three, protects him against subsequent prosecution for the same offense. The General Assembly codified this rule in Section 15A, 924. Other indictment rules that the General Assembly has made that have nothing to do with whether all the elements are listed are not jurisdictional requirements. It's indicated that in Section 15-153, where it states that criminal indictments shall not be quashed, nor the judgment stayed, sorry, nor the judgment thereon stayed by reason of any informality if sufficient matter appears to enable the court to proceed to judgment. And this court has recognized as much in State v. House. In House, the indictment contained the grand jury foreman's signature, but there was no attestation that 12 or more grand jurors had concurred in the finding of the true bill, which violated Section 15A, 644. This court noted that despite the use of the words must or shall in a statute, failure to follow the provision is not necessarily fatal to the validity of that indictment. Rather, the legislative intent is to be derived from considering the whole statute. And this court declined to interpret that statute to require quashing the indictment because doing so would elevate, quote, mere form over substance. And this court reaffirmed House's legislative intent approach in Bryce. The statutory indictment rule at issue in this case also does not specify whether failure to follow the rule is a jurisdictional defect. Uh, Section 14-415.1c provides that the indictment charging a defendant with possession of a firearm by felon quote, shall be separate from any indictment charging him with other offenses related to or giving rise to the possession of firearm by felon charge. As this court recognized in Bryce, the purpose of isolating prior convictions is to provide sufficient notice that the offense involves a prior conviction and to prevent unfair prejudice to the defendant by the jury learning of that prior conviction if the defendant chooses to admit it outside of the presence of the jury. This is to prevent the jury from finding the defendant guilty of the current offense merely because he was guilty of another similar felony on a prior occasion. In Old Chief, the U.S. Supreme Court recognized this very narrow scenario in which evidence of the prior conviction is unfairly prejudicial in the federal analog of our firearm by felon statute. That's when the defendant is also charged with a crime similar to the prior felony disqualifier and the defendant also agrees to stipulate to the, the existence of that conviction. In those narrow circumstances only, the federal rules of evidence make the nature of the prior felony unfairly prejudicial and thus inadmissible. Counsel, don't we typically look at a specific statute as uh, 
getting uh, being given precedence over a general statute? Yes, Your Honor. So while you talk about generally indictment law in terms of what statutes typically say and what we have typically held uh, with 14-415- I'm sorry, 14-415.1c talking about the fact that the indictment of possession of a firearm by a felon shall be separate from any other indictment, coupled with the fact that the word shall is used, why would Bryce, uh, as case law, supersede, uh, in the state's view, any of the other case law wherein we would not look at 14-415.1 as controlling? Well, Bryce sets up the appropriate analysis um, hearkening back to House, which really was the, the, the case that set that analysis. But the, the real issue is not what does that statute necessarily say, but what is the consequence of failure to follow that statute? And that is where Bryce and House become relevant. Yeah, and I appreciate what you're saying about elevating form over substance. But here we'd be looking in the face of a statute, would we not, uh, that subsection C, if we ignore the shall language, excuse the uh, separate language in terms of the indictment, uh, that's not elevating form over substance. Isn't that more of an ignoring of a statutory mandate? No, Your Honor. Um, it is not. First of all, it is, it is a matter of form because Frankly, the wording of the charge there is not at issue. Defendant has never alleged that anything is defective about the wording of the possession of firearm by felon charge. So that's where you get into the question of is this form or is this substance? The substance, which is the charging language, is completely sufficient. Defendant has never raised any claim that it was not. Um, the, the claim that he has raised is that the form of the indictment is um, contrary to the statute, which the state absolutely agrees. It is contrary to the form of the statute. Where the state disagrees is the consequence of that failure to follow the statute. And in Bryce, this court said that even though a statute may be mandatory in the sense that it says shall or must, that is not dispositive of whether it creates a jurisdictional requirement. Would this be a, a, a difficult, I'll call it, precedent for us if we would uh, rule in favor of the state on this in if you say it wouldn't be, then how would we distinguish it from other statutes that include shall and must um, if we go the route of the state? Um, I'm not entirely sure what other statutes Your Honor is referring to right now, but... None specifically, but okay. just in terms of just this elemental aspect of what the state is raising. Well... You, you mentioned earlier the concept of a statutory mandate, which that is a different sort of statute. Um, this court has extensive case law about what exactly constitutes a statutory mandate. Um, it's not just, it's a term of art. It doesn't just mean, is it a statute that requires something? It's, is it a statute that directs the court to do something? And in this statute, we do not have that sort of thing. We do not have a statutory mandate. It, it says that the indictment shall have this particular form. It doesn't say the trial court shall do this, and it doesn't control anything that the, the trial court has any authority to control. The trial court has no authority over the, the manner of the indictment. Um, so I think that it 
harmonizes with those cases perfectly fine. Um, it's not a difficult case for this court, given that Bryce is essentially the same thing. Granted, it is a different um, indictment requirement. It's a different statute, but it is involving the same sort of uh, purposes there. Um, uh, counsel, um, so the Court of Appeals followed its uh, precedent in State v. Wilkins. Do you think that the Court of Appeals was correct in doing that? No, Your Honor. Um, sorry. No, that, if, I assume you had a little explanation. There. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, I thought you had a follow-up. Yeah. Um, so the, the Court of Appeals was actually bound by this court's decision in-house to consider the entire statute and determine whether the legislative intent was for that indictment requirement to be a jurisdictional requirement. So and House predates Wilkins or any of the other cases. Um, if my math is right, Wilkins has been around for about 10 years. Um, couldn't, so two, two questions. Number one, couldn't the legislature have overruled it through legislation, essentially? Um, and since it hasn't, is there a, an argument here for legislative acquiescence? Your Honor, um, it, it has been around for, I think you, I forget if you just said, 2013 is when Wilkins was decided. Um, so sure, the, the legislature absolutely could have amended the, the statute. However, it has not done so, and it hasn't done so in any other way. It hasn't gone in there and um, changed that statute in any sort of way. So there's really no inference that the legislature was pleased with that outcome or that it was in line with its intent because they haven't gone in there and tinkered with anything else and, and then been like, oh, no, we'll leave that the way it is because that's how we wanted it. Um, so there's really no inference here of legislative acquiescence, um, especially given this court's decision in Bryce. Um, the legislature would be um, reasonable to have believed that, that Bryce actually took care of this issue. Uh, and I believe Bryce came out in 2017. So that's really only about four years. Um, Thank you. So if there are no um, consequences for violation of the statute, um, I, I mean, I, I understand your argument that it's, it's um, it may not be a jurisdictional defect, but if we say that, that there's no consequence for the failure to follow the statute, doesn't that essentially negate the statute? No, Your Honor. I, I wouldn't agree that there is no consequence for failure to, to follow the statute. It's just that, like other statutory violations, it needs to be raised to the trial court, which defendant here failed to do. So if a defendant um, indicted under a similar indictment had brought this violation to the trial court's attention, he very well might be entitled to some sort of relief on it. Um, and the state might have done something to correct that error, um, just as with the Bryce scenario. Um, the Bryce recognizes that there are types of defects with indictments that are waived by failure to raise them to the trial court. And this is one of those as well. The separate indictment provision in 415.1 makes the possession of firearm by felon charge stand out from the other charges and allows all the parties and the court staff to, to notice that charge more easily, which helps the judge, the prosecutor, and the defendant 
prevent the jury from learning of the prior conviction before there's been an opportunity for um, addressing any concerns about unfair prejudice from that prior conviction. It also provides a clean way for the defendant to plead guilty to that charge only uh, before the trial on any other charges, which would keep the, the fact of the prior conviction completely away from the jury. Um, and it's important to note that's the only way that the defendant can keep this completely away from the jury, unlike in the 928 context. Um, because essentially the prejudice, the potential for unfair prejudice is much higher in the 928 context than it is in the firearm by felon context. And that's for two reasons. Number one, um, in firearm by felon prosecutions, there's no inherent connection between the prior conviction and the current crime, which is the illegal possession of the firearm. Any felony will suffice to disqualify you from possessing a firearm. Um, it could be a drug offense, as it was in this case, or it could be um, felony larceny any sort of thing like that that has no connection to guns, which is the prototypical example of unfair propensity evidence. Similarly, uh, the defendant cannot keep this fully away from the jury because without the prior conviction, the behavior is not a crime. With 928 type crimes, those are crimes on their own. For example, Bryce involved habitual misdemeanor larceny, which involved a standalone larceny, uh, the punishment for which was enhanced by the prior convictions for misdemeanor larceny. So it makes sense to tell a jury a story with the state's evidence of how this defendant has committed this misdemeanor larceny without telling them about the prior convictions for misdemeanor larceny. But you cannot do that with possession of firearm by felon. Even Old Chief recognizes that the prosecution has to be able to tell a story of guiltiness and the moral reasonability of a guilty verdict, which is why the defendant only has the very, very narrow ability to keep the name of the felony away from the jury and only if it's similar to the, the charges that are at issue in that um, trial. And Old Chief itself actually recognizes that even if the defendant stipulates, the government may still introduce a redacted version of the judgment, which that's wholly not allowed under 928. 928 has separate statutory procedures that say the state is not allowed to adduce any evidence of the prior convictions if the defendant stipulates to them, which that whole trial procedure, which includes the arraignment and um, the prohibition on the state introducing evidence about the prior convictions reflects that higher risk of unfair prejudice in the 928 context. And the prejudice risk, the unfair prejudice risk here in possession of firearm by felon is extremely low. So low that they didn't even create a, um, a separate special trial procedure, which they did for the 928 context. Justice Allen, you brought up um, Wilkins. I just want to touch on why that case was wrongly decided, both at the time and now uh, in light of Bryce. So when the Court of Appeals decided Wilkins, it 
specifically said that it declined to follow the state's invitation to apply the reasoning from this court's opinion in house. Um, it was not authorized to do that. And as this court held in Bryce, house in fact is the appropriate way to analyze these sorts of requirements. Additionally, um, Wilkins failed to follow Boston, Inman, and Taylor, which were binding decisions of the Court of Appeals. And those decisions held that the indictment requirements in the possession of firearm by felon statute are not jurisdictional requirements. It additionally made the incorrect logical leap that mandatory language in the statute creates a jurisdictional requirement, which as we've already discussed, Bryce and House both recognize that mandatory language alone is insufficient to make it jurisdictional. <coughs> and then of course, as I have already covered, um, Bryce's holding that House controls these situations overrules the reasoning in Wilkins that House does not apply. Um, so in this case, the Court of Appeals should not have followed Wilkins and following Wilkins was an error of law because it was wrongly decided at the time and also it had been overruled by this court in Bryce by implication. Um, I did also wanna to touch on just briefly the issue of prejudice here for this particular defendant. It is apparent from the record that this defendant had ample opportunity to ask the trial court to redact the, the nature of the felony before the state introduced that judgment the trial court flagged what it was calling by name the old chief issue twice uh, for the defendant. He did it on page two of the transcript before jury selection even began. And then also after the trial began, but before the state introduced any evidence of the conviction, that's on page 157, the trial court brought it up again. Both times defendant's attorney acknowledged the issue and that he was going to discuss it. And then there was another opportunity um, Right before the state moved to introduce the judgment, the judge brought this same issue up again on page 268 of the transcript. And at this time, the trial court actually even explained the tactical considerations that might be at play in choosing or not to stipulate to this conviction and specifically asked the defendant, or the defendant's attorney, if he thought that the, um, that the fact that it was a possession of cocaine prior conviction was unduly prejudicial to him. And defendant's attorney said, I don't think that part of it is unduly prejudicial, referring to that identity of the crime, although he did ask to redact the sentence that was on the judgment. And there's no, uh, the trial court overruled that request and defendant hasn't raised any sort of error related to that. Um, so thus, even putting aside the fact that he has waived this argument, defendant clearly was not prejudiced in any way uh, by the failure to follow that separate indictment form requirement. So in short, the indictment against defendant here alleged all the essential elements of possession of firearm by felon, 
including the prior conviction. It was jurisdictionally sufficient. Um, defendant's failure to raise the indictment's noncompliance with section 415.1 in the trial court waived appellate review of that error. And the state asked this court to reverse the decision of the Court of Appeals on the jurisdictional sufficiency of the indictment and to specifically overrule Wilkins. And I'll reserve the rest of my time. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. You're from the FLE. Thank you. May it please the court, Joseph Lattimore on behalf of Cordero Newborn. This court is asked today to ascertain whether the legislature considered its separate indictment provision for a charge of possession of firearm by felon to be important or significant. Specifically, the question posed is, did the legislature, when it enacted this provision, do so to protect a substantial right of the defendant such that compliance therewith is required in order to have proper jurisdiction. Looking at the purpose of this particular provision and the legislature's acquiescence in four published and unpublished decisions endorsing our position on this, the answer is yes. I want to begin my substantive argument by acknowledging that this court has relaxed pleading requirements. Uh, but the vast majority of the cases that are addressed in our briefs uh, in this matter address the content of indictments. In other words, whether the words chosen to describe the offense were sufficient to meet pleading requirements. We can go back in time to 1943, uh, the case of State versus Gregory, where this court determined that an indictment for assault with a deadly weapon with intent to kill, inflicting serious injury, which failed to describe the nature and extent of the injury, was not fatally de uh, defective. There were multiple decisions following suit after that, leading to uh, this court's recent decision in Oldroyd last year, in fact, uh, where this court deemed sufficient for jurisdiction an indictment for attempted robbery with a dangerous weapon, which did not name the victims specifically, but rather listed them as employees of the Huddle House. And what this line of cases uh, that, that we've seen relaxing the pleading requirements shows is that the content of the indictment must allow the defendant to identify the event or transaction against which he had been called to answer so that he may be uh, able to prepare a defense and to protect against double jeopardy. But at pages 617 to 618 of the Oldroyd opinion, this court acknowledged that there may be, quote, additional statutory requirements in specific situations beyond 
the content requirements that are in, that are addressed in in the line of cases and that are covered by section 924 so what extra or additional statutory requirements must be satisfied for jurisdiction? Well, our, our analysis in, in, in this type of a, a case requires us to look at, at the purpose of the additional requirement. This court has held that provisions that are material to the protection of a substantial right are mandatory. So I'm, I'm, I'm now gonna draw upon some cases from this court in, in a slightly different context, and that would be allegations and abuse and neglect uh, cases. So for example, the statutory requirement that a juvenile petition alleging that a child is neglected be verified was deemed by this court a jurisdictional requirement. This court reasoned that the legislature wanted an identifiable government actor to vouch for the validity of a petition that interferes with due process protected parental rights. And this was reaffirmed by this court in 2021 in the matter of OEM, where this court held that the statutory requirement for verification of a motion used to initiate a parental rights termination proceeding is jurisdictional. So I, I, I believe that these cases are instructive here because both of the decisions were grounded in due process. And the specific provision at play in this case is also concerned with rights protected by due process. And that's the right to a fair trial. The provision at issue in this case is designed to prevent unduly prejudicial evidence from reaching the jury. Specifically, the provision ensures that the possession of firearm by felon charged with the prejudicial element, the inherently prejudicial element of a prior conviction does not get buried with the other charges. And so by requiring a separate indictment, it makes sure that the option of a stipulation is not overlooked by counsel. And I, I would also add that I, that I think that there's another practical application here, and I think it's that it gives a clerk or a judge a, a quote, heads up, so to speak, when reading the charges to the, to the jury panel, introducing the jury panel to the case, it, it's, it's sending the message when it's separated that we should exercise some caution here not to read all of the allegation on the possession for firearm, uh, uh, possession of firearm by felon uh, charge because it may eventually be stipulated to and, and not go to the jury. So, so help me understand your argument about why this is also jurisdictional. So I, I understand you're saying this is an element of due process and so it's important, but what's your response to the notion that um, the defendant can raise at, you know, can make some kind of motion and say, you know, this indictment is improper, doesn't comply with the statute, it combines two offenses, this will be prejudicial to me, and obtain a remedy before trial? The fact that there is a remedy in, in certain situations for less 
serious violations doesn't impact whether or not we have a, a jurisdictional problem here. And if we do have a jurisdictional problem, it can be raised at any time. Right, I understand that. But I guess what I'm asking you to articulate is what makes, the, uh, so I, I assume, assuming that this is very important, <laughs> a, a fundamental due process element that the jury should, when it's considering other charges, if the defendant wants to stipulate, should not know that they had this other conviction. So I, I, I get the importance of that. But how does that become jurisdictional? Whereas other elements, the, the types of um, things that are substantive, not form, um, you know, you, you don't have a crime if you don't um, allege all the elements of a crime. So, so that, that seems to me to be very clearly tied to the jurisdiction of the court. How is this tied to the jurisdiction of the court? I think to answer that, that question, we've, we've got to look at what the, what the statute governing content requirements gets at. And, and that is, again, to provide sufficient notice uh, in order to know exactly what you're, you're charged with and how to prepare a defense, but also to protect you against double jeopardy. So those are two particular due process related goals. And what this, what this court has ruled on a number of occasions is that if you comply with the statute, then you effectuate those two very, very important goals. If you do not, then your indictment is deficient and there's, there's no jurisdiction. This is similar in that it is also implicating due process. It's just another particular area of due process and, and, and that is ensuring the fairness of a trial. So as I, as I just stated, the, the cases suggest you've got to look at the essence of, of what it is that the legislature is trying to accomplish uh, with this particular provision. And our position is that like uh, what's covered in the statutory uh, provision that, that, that covers uh, uh, the sufficiency of, of indictments in, in terms of their, their wording, this also guards important due process rights, and that's what makes it jurisdictional. Couldn't that same argument be made about the uh, provision in 15A-928 that was at issue in Bryce? Well, it, it was identified in Bryce that that particular provision uh, re requiring a, uh, a separate charge or a separate indictment uh, had the goal of protecting uh, fairness of a, of a trial. However, if, if you read Bryce carefully, uh, the opinion suggests that requiring a separate indictment uh, was not essential under that statutory scheme it was not necessary to ensure the fairness of the proceeding because you have a backup arraignment provision which brings the prior convictions to the attention of the defendant and allows him to either admit to those or to challenge them and allow them to go to the jury. Uh, th that was an important part 
of the analysis was a determination by this court that the separate indictment provision under 928 was not necessary to effectuate that particular goal. What's different here is there is no backup indictment uh, or backup uh, arraignment provision rather. Um, I've cited a case in my brief which stands for the proposition that 928 does not apply to charges of possession of a firearm by a felon. So you don't, you don't have uh, the separate arraignment provision that will ensure that this is addressed and, and will not potentially get to, the, get to the jury like you do in Bryce under 928. Counsel, I, I, I think your friend on the other side has uh, suggested the, the failure to raise this argument um, at trial uh, may result in waiver. Would you agree that if we find uh, that the violation here is not jurisdictional, that your client has waived the argument under 415.1? I'd be hard-pressed to, to, to argue against that if it's not considered jurisdictional. Uh, then, I, then I think the other cases uh, that, are, uh, that are raised in, uh, in Bryce and other opinions would would control this matter and and i think it would be waived uh, but again our position is that it is uh, jurisdictional in nature uh, there is a significant goal behind this particular provision and i want to close uh, my argument by addressing the issue of uh, the legislature's inactivity uh, with respect to the statute of uh, possession of a firearm by felon. Uh, the state seems to argue that since the legislature has taken no action on the statute whatsoever since I think 2011, that we can't read anything into their intent um, with respect to uh, this particular provision at issue here today. Um, but I'm, I'm struggling with that particular argument because this court has recognized that when the legislature chooses not to amend a statutory provision that has been interpreted in a specific way, we assume it is satisfied with the administrative interpretation. So we have had multiple decisions, both unpublished and published, come down since 2004. Uh, I, I appended two unpublished decisions to, to my brief to this court. Um, we also have the Wilkins decision, which is published in 2014. And then there was a, another unpublished opinion that, that, that followed in the year after Wilkins. So our appellate courts, uh, the Court of Appeals in particular, has announced on four separate occasions that this separate indictment provision is jurisdictional in nature and that a failure to comply with it is, is a defect uh, that is fatal. And the legislature has chosen not to act. They have allowed it to stand. They have never felt the need to address the disparate treatment that has been given to the different uh, provisions within uh, 415.1c. And as our cases suggest, that's a reflection when the, when the legislature does not respond to decisions of, of our courts, of its intent. 
that it agrees with how that particular provision that it enacted uh, has been treated. Of course, uh, it also hasn't overruled this court's uh, interpretation in Bryce um, saying that the, and I guess there's de debate on whether they're comparable provisions, the, 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 the parallel, if you will, provision in 158-928 is not jurisdictional, so uh, can, can we really rely on legislative acquiescence here? Uh, maybe, yes. the, maybe the legislature I, I, assumes that we're going to bring the Court of Appeals into line with, with, with Bryce. But they had multiple opportunities from 2004 until the decision in Bryce in 2017 and never took any action. And our position is that they address two completely different statutory provisions which have different mechanisms, as, as I explained, 928 has uh, a backup provision which I think ensures uh, the fairness of a trial that we do not have here. If there are no further questions, I would rest on my brief. Thank you, counsel. Rebuttal. I'd like to begin my rebuttal by addressing the, the point that uh, Justice Allen just brought up about the legislative acquiescence issue. Um, first of all, the legislature has not been on notice that this was an issue since 2004. Those unpublished cases from the Court of Appeals are not binding on anyone other than in that case. So it's completely unsurprising that the legislature would do anything fail to do anything to correct an error in an unpublished case. It simply doesn't support any sort of inference um, that they were satisfied with that interpretation. It's really only been an issue uh, that the legislature could potentially have weighed in on since 2013 when the Court of Appeals decided Wilkins. Um, and then, as we already covered, Bryce came out in 2017 that's about four years later, so the legislature would be entirely um, reasonable to believe that that settled the matter and that that, that is establishing that with all of these indictment form um, statutes that they're to be evaluated um, on an entire statute basis, um, as was this, this court's law since House, um, and then Bryce reaffirmed that. Um, and further, with the legislative acquiescence issue, what you do have is three Court of Appeals opinions that were published beginning in, I believe, 2004 and spanning through 2011, where the Court of Appeals applied House's reasoning and said the content requirements are non-jurisdictional. If the if the legislature had intended for anything to be jurisdictional, surely it would be the content requirements and not the form. And since 2004, the legislature has been in um, amending the possession of firearm by felon statute, I think it's been five times since those cases have been um, handed down and it has never touched the indictment provision, which 
that indicates that it was completely satisfied with the interpretation of those content requirements being non-jurisdictional. And surely it would not, the, the legislature would not have intended content requirements to be non-jurisdictional and then a form requirement to be jurisdictional. Um, and to circle back to the arraignment procedure issue, the arraignment procedure is part of a larger trial procedure that the legislature saw fit to enact in those 928 cases for the reasons we've already discussed about the, the higher risk of unfair prejudice and uh, as well the ability to completely avoid that prejudice by simply keeping those prior convictions away from the jury. Um, so that in-trial procedure is the right that the indictment form is really the backstop for. The, the in-trial right is what is important there, and even that, um, in that instance, that is not a jurisdictional requirement. And there's no similar procedure in possession of firearm by felon because the danger is so much smaller as well as the ability to avoid it is so much smaller. Um, and with that, the state asks this court to reverse the Court of Appeals and um, on both the jurisdictional issue in Newborn and in Wilkins as well to clarify that law. Thank you, counsel. Thank you to both counsel.